Hello and welcome to Contra Mundum. I am your host, Pastor Andrew Isker, and please welcome my co-host, CJ. Hello, CJ. Hey, Andrew. How was your week, CJ? Good. It was uh, very active on, on Twitter, so that's always a good week. <laughs> yeah, you, you, were, you were posting like crazy. And, and I, I, uh, we have a, a special guest. We have, we have a friend here. Uh, he doesn't have a, a name on, on the bottom here, so we can't identify him easily. But this is Josh <laughs> Abitoy, uh, and he is – what is your title here uh, uh, exactly? I'm Managing Director. The Managing Director of Newfounding. Uh, Impressive. He's, yeah, I just, I just think of you know, him as, as uh, at – business on Twitter. Um, and I, I, yeah. it's fun to see a, an account in the flesh though, you know? Uh, he's, yeah. He, right. He does great well, posting. He, he's a good poster. I'm uh, I'm also the managing director of Contramundum. So we have that's that in common. Right. That's right. Same title. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. If that's you right. join a startup, you can get the best titles guys. I mean, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the elites don't want you to know this, but you can have any title you want. I have 95 titles. Yes, and so I, I'm here live in in the new founding studio. This is uh, <coughs> this is their audio recording uh, studio. They they don't have it totally optimized yet for for video. Maybe someday, uh, but it's uh, but we have a bookshelf just like you in the background. Yeah, um, yeah. So, unlike yeah. unlike mine, though, you can pull the books off the shelf. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, uh, <clears throat> what uh, what's been going on this week that you've been tweeting about that you want to talk about? Well, you know, I've been I've been really engaged in the G three uh, reaction to Christian nationalism and just interacting with that. I mean, that's kind of taken up the bandwidth of my own uh, thumb thumb efforts. So I, um, well, actually, I don't say I, I actually only tweet from the computer. So all fingers engaged. <laughs> it's been a busy week. Uh, that's how I do threads. <laughs> so, anyways, um, that's kind of taken up the absorbed a lot of my attention and just uh, it's just interesting. Um, more, more interesting than defending like the particular formulations of like Stephen Wolf or any of the other variations, more interesting than that has been the overall response. Um, just how disappointing it is. It's really lame. Like it's, it's just, it's like, um, like, I, you know, I don't want to make it this big thing where like it's, uh, they're the enemy and we're trying to fight them or something like that. But just the overall like atmosphere is like, um, disappointing. Like there's just been no effort to engage. It's kind of like looking down um, their nose at people who are critiquing the failures of the, the uh, liberal regime, you know, the American liberal regime and all of the myths that go along with it. Uh, just any pushback from the right of those themes um, has been completely dismissed and mocked by um, Big Eva or the regime evangelicals or any, however you want to put it, you know, bowtie evangelicals. But it's just really interesting to me to see how, um, underwhelming the response has been. Like you would think that after this much time, there's a book out there. Uh, there's even a statement out there, and we have varying opinions on on the statement. But besides all that, just the lack of good faith conversation has just been really revealing for a lot of people. And I think um, I think it's helped. I think it's helped the case of pushback. You don't have to be a Christian nationalist to recognize that there's something seriously wrong with the gatekeepers of evangelical political theology. And I, I got to jump in here. A couple interesting developments over the last week. The first one being, if you saw, Jonathan Lehman actually wrote a really long article summarizing the Christian nationalism debate and providing a taxonomy of basically Christian post-liberals. Now, Jonathan Lehman, you know, he's a he's a mainstream, big Eva Baptist, um, runs nine marks. The, the significant thing that happens there is, one, he's actually read a lot of the stuff 
and his article gives a pretty fair summary descriptively of, of where the Christian nationalists are substantively. And then number two, the other thing that's happened is him and others like him have actually backed off fully orbed liberal, uh, like 20th century liberal positions. So they're, they're no longer with John Stuart Mills or David French. Um, they're calling themselves second tabularians. They want to enforce the natural law, at least as it relates to a lot of moral harms. And, and the, the significant thing about that is that's a huge hurdle that we need to cross to actually start doing stuff politically that we need to be doing. Like the first table stuff, and, you know, that's important theoretically, for sure. But it's also, you know, acting on that is a, is a goal that's going to be far out. Whereas, you know, we've already overcome some of the theoretical hurdles to start banning porn and protecting kids from getting transed and those sorts of agenda items that we need to be taking action on today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's all true. You know, and just from my own perspective, you know, I I'm um I'm less interested, and this is one of this has been the motivating factor for some of my you know recent Twitter threads is I don't really see um that much of a benefit of creating an, like a blueprint for society for how things should function. I think that's a very uh, theonomic um, impulse that I don't share. Um, I'm very much like um, a particularist and I'm very much a prudentialist. And I recognize that um, there are particular enemies and particular uh, moral political threats at play in the here and now. And that politics is the art of dealing with those, figuring out where your allies should be, where your friends are, who the enemies are, and where the, um, the, the, uh, the bandwidth, uh, you know, where, where you need to expend political bandwidth in order to confront uh, these types of threats. Uh, but I, so, I mean that, and I know that I agree with, with um, that, but, but the, the spirit of that is really going to require um, a certain sort sort of like confrontational post-liberalism that I don't think um, the majority of evangelical letter, uh, leaders are willing to talk about. I mean, there are people like Jonathan Lehman for sure. Um, and he's willing to talk about those things. And, and, and just like, I mean, that sounds like a, uh, a little bit of a shift from from the way he would speak about politics, you know, several years ago, you know, in, in my estimation, so changing the conversation is is good, but it does require us to really deal with a lot of the more the fundamental and foundational myths that that like um that, that hang over our heads as like inheritors of the 20th century. I, I think that's exactly right. I just got to hit this one more time. I think that the the hurdle that we now have to cross substantively is getting evangelicals to think about um, regime politics in a realistic way, in a classical way. Understanding that at our founding, we had a republic. It fit our people because we were a virtuous people. I mean, we're a remarkably virtuous people at our founding. We were 98% literate. We were, you know, we our ancestors were living in log cabins and reading Cicero in the Latin at night after they got done farming. And, you know, that's not where we are anymore. And I think like, like a lot of the next theoretical hurdle isn't so much on the substance of legislation and what can the state theoretically do, but it has a lot more to do with the recognition that um, our governmental system is not as good of a fit for our people as it used to be, and that necessarily we're in regime change politics. That means a lot of things are up for grabs, and and it's going to look different than it has in the past. Okay, but that I mean that 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 um, the way you phrase that is exactly. Um the challenge that 
people who want to like maintain like just just like that sort of um spirit of like general conservatism where we we're not allowed to address those types of regime change um issues that we just want to maintain and consolidate um i think that right there is the challenge that a lot of evangelicals are going to face because there is a spirit of like we're just pilgrims here we shouldn't engage or shouldn't confront we shouldn't even talk about political enemies like that that to them is a completely foreign concept um completely at odds with the way they they think about their function within the world um you know as, as sort of like passers through and so i think just just the fact that they have to confront that is making them very uncomfortable i i think i think there's a certain level of discomfort they're not familiar with it and i agree with stephen that like a lot of these theologians like they shouldn't even be really engaging in the topic as much as they should be um, students of an entire tradition of thought that they never took time to to think about. You know, um, we're learning a lot of this is like new to us. Like we're younger people. We didn't learn a lot of this in school. This wasn't something that's natural to us. And I don't think they have it either. And so I think there needs to be more of a spirit of like looking, looking backward to learn about people who came before and maybe have a much better uh, qualitatively understanding of the concept of the political. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I think, I mean, just going back to your point, CJ, about relearning how to do politics. I mean, it sort of parallels um, really in the last 20 years within the evangelical, the conservative evangelical world, there is like a cottage industry of, of books on parenting that are out there where people, for, for whatever reason, in, in, during neutral world, maybe, or, 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 or whatever, during, you know, baby boom period uh, where they became ascendant people forgot how to raise children like they just they just like that was like knowledge like like after the collapse of rome they forgot how to do metallurgy right and it's it's the similar kind of thing they just forgot how to raise children and so you have all these books about well actually here you know here's when you spank them and here's when you don't and like there's all of these books over the last 20 years you know doug wilson has written all, all of these a lot of really good books and many other people um and politics has to take a similar form that there has been this change. I mean, and so some of it isn't that we've forgotten things. It's that the situation has changed to a less comfortable one where we have to relearn the art of politics that Christians understood uh, intuitively for 1500 years or even longer. Uh, that is just completely forgotten because we didn't have this, uh, this, um, liberal republic that that more or less worked for 200 years um it, it doesn't any longer we see the the cracks in the foundation and so we have to go back to well what what created the kind of people what kind of politics created the kind of people uh that created that kind of republic right how were they formed like it did like I mean, most people just think american history began or, or history in general began in 1776 if not 1945 but they think like just americans sprung from the ground in in Plymouth or, or in in Jamestown in in you know the the 1600s, um, and there isn't a whole history and tradition and culture of thousands of years that formed and shaped those people uh, when that created America, uh, and so some of it is just going back to that. And and so you look at this discussion, you know, going back to the the G three guys, um, that's completely foreign to them. Mm -hmm. Just just thinking through those things, like and and you see it. To a certain extent, like I mean, all of our guys had a lot of fun making memes. Like Bendel Wary, his me, his uh, that the Mexican uh, 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 talk show host laughing meme was hilarious. Uh, but 
but I, I feel like these guys uh, just got sent out uh, unprepared. Um, and they, they did, they clearly didn't know what they're talking about. They've never thought through any of these issues before. And they just, they, they trot out these kind of, um, neutral world talking points that are absolutely absurd when we're, when the, the mainstream political discussion right now is whether or not to you know, chop off the genitalia of children. And, and so it's like, they're like, well, you know, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world. And this world's not our home and really just preach the gospel. And it's like, these are not answers to political questions that are confronting us right now. Um, exactly. They're not political and, answers. That's right. And, and one can see like some triumphalism about America and liberalism when you're in the 1950s and you're like the richest yeah. country in history <laughs> and you're generally still a relatively moral society and, you know, humans are flourishing and all of that. Um, but to in 2023 to look back on Christendom and sort of despise it and say, oh, you know, we tried it and it didn't work, you know, that's uh, that's rich. Yeah, yeah. It's, I just I can't help but laugh. And, and and again, like you know, you brought it up, CJ. Like these guys are not enemies in you know in the in the friend enemy distinction uh, mm-hmm. manner. Like mm-hmm. these are brothers in Christ. They and I'm sure well, they mean well. Well, what but, they are is they're is they're liberals in the like in, in yeah. the instinctual sense of the word, where they yeah. they think they can deny the political. They think they can be, yeah. uh, you know, they 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 have this mentality of politics. This is kind of like the American way uh, in in the post war sense, where we are post we we are transcending politics. Yeah. Like there is this concept of the law, and there's principles that stand above politics, and where we can, you know, by the use of the law and by the use of our principles, we can actually overcome that ancient political concept that really weighed down humanity. That's the liberal spirit, and so what they have is they have this. They're not they're not enemies, but they are like this. They are this like um, this this middle ground where they don't want to commit. They want yeah. to have both. They want to have this dialogue between people, yeah. and they don't. They really didn't take the lessons of like, um, uh, well, of someone like Carl Schmidt, you know, who's someone that I really look to 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 look beyond the horizons of the of the liberal framing of things. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Anything you wanted to add on on this topic, or we uh, have we covered it? No, I, I just the memes have been fantastic over the last week. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. there's the there's the Mexican talk show, and then there's the, 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 uh, downfall. the downfall clip. You know? um, <laughs> so go check him out. I think it's all in good fun. But uh, yeah, a lot of people got salty say, about it. But, yeah. These Baptists, these Baptists are my people. All right. Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. know if y'all. I know you're not a Baptist, CJ. I don't know what you are, but do not mess with the Baptists. Like <laughs> yes. these guys will destroy you. Did you, did you, what do you think about like, um, the, the response of like being offended? Like, because like people who make those memes, obviously you're doing it in good fun. You know, they're not trying to create enemies with James White. Um, they can engage in playful, uh, uh, you know, playful bickering and things like that, which is, which is what I like, you know, before we went on, I was bickering with Andrew and, uh, you know, the, the poster known as we're all going to make it. We were bickering and making fun of each other. And I that yeah. sort of spirit doesn't yeah. translate, you know, because James White did not take that well at all. That that meme. So no. I, do you have any thoughts on just the um, the spirit it's, of like like just just that confrontational? I don't I don't really understand it. I mean, maybe it's generational. Maybe it's um, these theoretical issues are too close to home. James White has actually been talking about these things a lot longer than any of us. That might be part of it. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's definitely generational. Um, the other thing I would say is that 
you know, you see this often in Christian circles, right? When some, when people are in positions of authority, they don't like, um, you know, being challenged. They feel like they're being challenged as a pastor or as a spiritual leader, when in fact they're getting a, what I would call is like more of a secular critique of their ideas in the realm of the political. So, you know, if you're a pastor and you want to start talking on matters of politics, uh, you know, there's a way the discourse happens. It's a little rougher in that realm. And and that's, uh, you know, millennials, we're all used to this. We probably were all posting in 2016 when Trump ran and all the rest. Like, it's good fun. You know, you troll each other and then, you you know, you, you make up and you're friends again. And I, I think that the pastors coming into the political are getting awoken to some of that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of it I think is is definitely generational. I mean, there's some guys who are younger that that still did the kind of, well, this is really immature, and this is this is not how we should talk to each other, and so on and so forth. When like they'll post absurd things, and they'll they'll be uh, kind of snippy and snarky in in their Twitter posts, and and so it's like some of it is like you you could give it, but you can't uh, take it. You know, some of it's that um, I noticed, but at some of it also, like like with James White, is is just generational. Like he he's not going to be able to handle memes um, that are again used against him anyway, um, because yeah, you you don't understand that it's not this. These are not um, this is not a debate where I'm I'm debating a, a pa- like pastor versus pastor, and I'm I'm treating and say brother. I think, you know, and, and just using that kind of language, like, brother, I, I respectfully, blah, 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 blah. Like that's, that's how they expect debates to go uh, or to be treated. Uh, but this is not a spiritual debate. This is not a debate over theology. Ultimately, it's a debate over politics and, and uh, what is prudent, uh, a course of action in, in these extremely contentious battles. And, and so, yeah, I... I think like if you can't handle the heat of memes, you just got to get out of the meme kitchen. Uh, that's <laughs> that's that's the way. Like, if you, like people make memes, they make fun. Like they tell jokes, and and yeah, CJ makes fun of me. Like he made, before we went on air, he was making fun of me for being an hour and a half late, and uh, and he was very upset with me for being late. And I I, I was just ready to say, sorry to keep you waiting, folks. <laughs> it's a it's a complicated business. It's a complicated business. Uh, <laughs> like you, you got to be able to handle jokes, you know, yeah. uh, uh, in this in this kind of stuff, because um, it is a complicated business. <laughs> <coughs> All right, so what are you guys doing over there? What's going on? Go, yeah, go oh, ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're we're uh, I'm a, you know managing director here at New Founding. Um, so we're we're uh, building a platform to connect people to who trust each other to build businesses together, and you know basically build up an alternative economy. So we've got all sorts of stuff cooking. We've got uh, a talent network that we launched about six months ago, and we've got like almost 3,000 top-notch executives in it now who are all basically at elite corporations or other, you know, tech, other places. And they've all raised their hand and basically said, you know, help me get out and help me find a good uh, landing spot. And, you know, that's that's not going to be like a non-woke non-insane company with competent people that are building cool stuff. Um, I, that resonates with me. I, I came out of the corporate world a year and a half ago. So I was at a big law firm and doing private equity stuff and, uh, you know, kind of watched the world falling apart, um, took a mind to, you know, my kids. <laughs> like, what what kind of country am I going to hand over to them, you know, and I'm going to be spending the best years of my life um, making a bunch of people on Wall Street rich. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, that was a move I made, and we're seeing that, that there's a lot of people that are interested in making moves like that. They'll take pay cuts, 
they'll move, they'll make serious sacrifices to, to be part of an organization that they believe in. And so that's really cool. So we're, we're trying to facilitate that. And then we do a lot of investing. We advise a lot of early growth stage companies and partner with them, help them, you know, grow. They're doing cool stuff like kids books companies and, um, you know, real estate companies that are leaning into, you know, doing developments in red states and kind of interesting new developments that are possible to do because of the uh, remote work revolution. Um, so we're, we're hitting on all that stuff down here at New Founding, having a lot of fun doing it. Great crew of guys. And then one thing I do on the side, I, I run this nonprofit, um, American Reformer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we've got a web journal. We do do a podcast. Actually, we beat up on cultural Christianity and and the critique <laughs> of it uh, in our in our most recent episode. Uh, so that very timely in that sense. Um, and then, you know, we, we've got a bunch of other uh, initiatives going at American Reformer. I mean, one of the things that we really try to do is like work with institutions. Um, we think that conservatives are very good at running away from institutions when they see a warning sign, a first sign of trouble. We want to help develop like savviness to actually win institutional battles, not even just play defense, but go on offense and take back some ground. Mm-hmm. Good. And Andrew, what are you doing over there? <laughs> are I'm, you just doing hanging, I'm just hanging out. <laughs> no, I'm just hanging out, uh, meeting, meeting friends and, 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 uh, getting connected with these guys down here. I've, 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 I've been here before. So I, I had yeah. to, I had to come, uh, check out what everybody's doing down here. It's, yeah. uh, it really is amazing. And just to, to observe their office and, and, and talk to the guys. I mean, the crew that they've built they are just top notch people and, uh, it's really, really impressive stuff. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Good. So, uh, let's shift over a little bit, um, I guess into more practical, you know, things since we have you as a guest and, um, you know, what do you make of, uh, you know, I don't want to ask you like lame questions, like what do you think the economy is going to do or whatever, but like, you know, how, how do you think, how do you think, you know, people listening to this podcast should approach, um, just the state of uncertainty, you know, in the world politically and, and economically, like, you know, everyone is coming from a different background. Everyone has different skills. Um, so there's no one size fits all answer for everybody, but just in terms of someone's demeanor, in terms of someone's, you know, uh, you know, how they, how they approach the world around them, you know, politically, socially, like what, what things do you see working for people that, that maybe someone listening could benefit from hearing about? Yeah, I would say consolidation is my overall point. Like focus on if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a Christian. You're probably somebody who's got who who at least prioritizes family. Maybe you already have one, or maybe you're trying to get one. Um, lean into like all of those non tangible, non financial things. Those are stores of value. Like like legitimately. I mean, we're in uncertain times. You know, you want to invest with the U.S. dollar. It's very unclear what that does over the next five years, right? Like, who knows? I mean, I think, you know, if that thing stops being the world's reserve currency, which it's on its way to doing, there can be like cataclysmic collapses in value. Very smart financial people who know way more than any of us have no idea what to do with their money right now. Um, So, okay, fine. You know, um, maybe you don't know what to do with your money, but you can invest your time in other things that are like very serious stores of value. You know, I mentioned a while ago that there's all these like talented people who want to leave their lucrative jobs at investment banks and they want to join something cool and disruptive and new with like, you know, uh, other builders who share their values. Well, um, like lean into that. Go start a startup. Go do something like that. 
you're you're actually taking there's money on the table that you can take because you wear your values on the sleeve and you're taking the other side of ESG and DEI like the the values that all the big corporations have taken like order your life to make it anti-fragile to have people who are going to have your back if things really hit the fan uh, and that's not just like physical security but it's economically as well mm -hmm. i think that's the hardest part for people like you know becoming free like that um, a lot of it is a mentality you know a lot of it is um being able to recognize where you are where you're operating you know like um how you how you in your particular situation can adjust and prepare um but a lot of people don't have, like, especially people listening to the show, I wouldn't imagine that there's a lot of people with a lot of cash reserves that can make big changes like that. So I think a lot of it is going to emphasize, um, you know, just looking, constantly looking for opportunities. Um, and I don't mean that like in an like a pure entrepreneurial way. I, I look at that like also in a familial or like a social, like a sociological way. I mean, just look for ways to structure your life as best as you can in a way that makes you less vulnerable um, to a variety of different political situations. You know, like like there is there are economic and currency wars going on. Things can really pivot into like a like an inflationary situation. Uh, they could also pivot into a deflationary situation. You know, that, like that could just as easily be the case, like as debt is liquidated, right? Um, that could be a very de deflationary situation too. So just like think about your own, you know, vulnerability um, to systems. Um, think about, you know, your attachment to your community. You know, think about your attachment to your neighbors, right? Think about like just things like that. So it doesn't even have to be like, where do I put my cash? This isn't an investment show. I think it's more of a broader um, you know, approach to the world, like, you know, how, how are we going to situate ourselves and our children, um, for, you know, the next five, six, seven decades of, of chaos, recovery, decline, and rebuilding? Well, I think CJ, you, you bring up, um, it shouldn't be like a pure entrepreneurial question, but in, in the sense of, Everything you're doing is investing capital, you know, a, a one form of capital or another, whether it's, you know, actual capital or, or your time um, and your energy. And, and so, you know, as Josh is saying, like you, you have finite resources, we all have finite resources and the things that matter the most, you know, family, uh, church, uh, community, um, those are the things that you should be prioritizing and looking for and investing in because the return on that obviously you know, just did <laughs> almost in the not just in a crude you know financial sense but uh, but in in a more fuller broader sense uh it the return on those things is massive um and those are the things that are going to get you through in the future is is the family and the in real life relationships that you have and so i've i've long said that you know if if you're at a point where you know, there's there's uncertainty with work and things like that. You should be looking to uh, plant yourself in a place where your grandchildren can thrive um, when you're our age, right? Be thinking thinking about those things and, and building in, in a place where you can spend your entire life building something, building a community, building building something that isn't just for yourself going to be anti fragile, but for the group as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, if you could build uh, places where you can take uh, political power, right? Which might mean you know, sitting on the county commissioners, or or even having the ear of the county commissioners and sheriff and your uh, local city council and so forth. Like being being able to do those things is extremely, extremely valuable. Um, especially like as we see, like you know, your state and mine, for instance, CJ. Um, 
are totally in crazy town, you know? And so it's imperative uh, for us. I mean, we're, we're, we both live in very red, like the reddest parts of these really deep blue states. Um, and so it's imperative to, to build up those things in these places or, or if it's a, a place where you can just no longer stay to, to begin searching for opportunities elsewhere and, and building communities elsewhere. Um, and usually those are centered around the church. Um, I mean, I, I know like we, we have, eventually we'll have Michael Foster on the show uh, someday. I'm not going to you know, write a check that I can't cash. So now, now he has to come on. Uh, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he has been building a community in, in Cincinnati, in Batavia, or outside Cincinnati, in Batavia, Ohio. Um, and people have, have been flocking to their church because it isn't just, just merely a church, like a, uh, a religious consumption opportunity like most church churches are. Um, it's, it's an actual community that people want to, to invest their lives into. Um, so like looking for places like that. I mean, we've, we've mentioned Moscow, Idaho before, but pla- places like that, you can make those yourself. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to say something about Moscow real quick. I mean, it's not... It's an investment to move out there. It's gotten very expensive out there because it's so desirable. And, of course, the federal government owns, like, 95% of the land in Idaho. But, like, you could also, like, there's a financial element where there's such a strong entrepreneurship community out there. Like, it's a great place to go if you don't know exactly what you're going to do because there's a million things you can get plugged into. They trust each other and they give each other opportunities to learn new things, to pivot, to grow into new areas. There's like a dynamism and an upward mobility in a community like that that is not present for somebody who's just been on like a typical corporate track. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree like that. I mean, that's just kind of having that like local and regionalist perspective on things, uh, recognizing that um, Washington, D.C. is a very massive, perhaps the biggest bureaucracy in world history. And... Uh, the idea that even with all the investment that they've made into technological surveillance, um, just technology in general, just all the intelligence agencies, they still are they're in a, they're unable to to um, do everything that they want to do. There's just too many people doing too many things, um, and so they they can't do everything. They can't stop everyone. Yeah, you know, there's just too many people, and so just the, the ability to carve an opportunity out for yourself. Um, carve a little platoon where you can and your family can thrive, I think is important. And people are recognizing the need for that more and more. And so complacency is not just a political reference. It's also a personal reference. You know, you, 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 you can't just be satisfied with um, like democratic liberalism politically, but you also can't be, um, you know, satisfied with the way the economy has been purposefully uh, structured over the last 30 years in order to sustain yourself for the future either. Complacency is something uh, that can undermine you politically, spiritually, like like um, ecclesiologically, like in every aspect of your life, just being completely content with the way things have been is not a way to live your life in a revolutionary age. Yeah. Yeah. Adapt or die. Adapt or die. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, what, what was the next topic you wanted to talk about? I think uh, we can keep things moving along. Um, we could, well, let's talk about our vindication. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Why, don't, why don't you talk, you go ahead. Yeah. I don't have the videos queued up or, or any, anything like that, but, um, you know, a couple, about a month ago, uh, we talked about the, the man on the subway in New York city, his, his wife, he's there with his you know, wife and, and small child. 
and a homeless man starts accosting them and yelling at them and, and, and behaving bizarrely. And all sorts of people online were like, well, why doesn't he just punch that guy? Why doesn't he defend his, his wife? Like, well, why did she just man up? And it, of course it's ludicrous and foolish. And we, we said that at the time, this is ridiculous. Like Alvin Bragg, the DA of, of New York will, would love to make an example of a white guy beating up a black guy on a subway. Like, I think I said that verbatim. You could go back and look at episode, I think it's like episode not eight or nine. Um, and yesterday or two days ago, um, uh, a homeless, uh, seemingly mentally ill man uh, was behaving rude, bizarrely, in basically the same way uh, on the subway, accosting people. Um, and a 24-year-old Marine uh, put him in a headlock and eventually, apparently, um, the homeless man died. Uh, for reasons, you know, the medical examiner can can tell us why. But he, did, he apparently was still breathing after he let him out of the headlock. Is is what how the, the police report, I guess, says. Uh, but the police let him go. But then there was public fear, and now they're they're going to arrest him and probably uh, ruin this this young man's life. Um, mm-hmm. And and so we were we were vindicated. I I, I think as as clearly as can be. I mean, almost an identical situation uh, that. Uh, the, you can't you 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 could do it you physically could do it he did it but you can't do it well, because you, now your life is ruined well what you can't do is you can't continue to operate on myths about the nature of the american justice system yeah that's what you can't do you can't pretend like it's 1970 1980 even 1990 you can't you can't pretend like you have um you know you have certain rights to self defense you have to recognize that these all these things have been politi- uh, politicized and you have to think politically right the justice yeah. system has been politicized and you no longer have the rights that you think you do and there are consequences for uh, operating on myth there are consequences yeah. for for operating in uh, in light of a of a political system that has since expired uh, and I think that's the big lesson here is, um, you know, you could you can cite things like self-defense. You can cite things like your America, your rights as an American. You can cite all those things. You can cite, um, you know, references to like the you know, pub, like like public, um, you know, like just just causing stirring up outrage in public and like annoying people and all those things. You are not allowed to address those things no. in certain ways. Uh, if you do not belong to the correct, um, you know, demographic or whatever, like there are political elements to the way that you have to live your life now, and you can't pretend like uh, things exist that don't exist. You want to add anything to that? You're you're the attorney here, so you know, like law, uh, you you could cite some cases. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm not going to say anything legal here. I'm going to, uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I think that it's probably right. And I don't know, maybe y'all know the identity of this gentleman who performed the stranglehold, you know, in New York uh, a couple days ago. I don't think they released his name um, as far as I know. I think there's a difference when it's somebody with a family who, uh, you know, leans on them for support versus an individual who decides to do something like this. I mean, it, it uh, because I would say there's a there's a nobility about like refusing to accept anarchic conditions and standing up for hey, this is the public square. Like we comport ourselves decently here. People on the subway shouldn't have to feel threatened for their lives when they're just yeah. trying to get to work or get home from their job or whatever. And there's like a nobility in in standing up and doing that, even you know, 
somebody without a family, perhaps who knows the costs and decides, Hey, I want to, I want to step in here. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily hold that, you know, against them. Um, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. You know, and it's, it also helps to, um, illustrate, I think what the conditions are actually like yeah. in New York city. And for that, I think we should all be grateful. Um, you know, it, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, um, it, that, that's the hard thing that, yeah, you see, you see a guy like that and you think like this, this guy did a good thing like this. And, and it's amazing. Cause you see, they're like, there's like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people on Twitter right now saying maybe millions, uh, saying, I can't believe you people don't think that a, a, a mentally ill homeless man doesn't have the right to accost people on the subway. Like that's a human right. Uh, and they killed him for it, you know? And like there are people that take that take this guy's side and think he was murdered. Um, it's it's insane, but they they really do think that. Um, but in reality, in like a normal society that isn't isn't completely um, morally brain dead and and filled with anarchy, um, this guy would be a hero, right? This we would look at that guy and say, thank, like everyone would stand up and clap. Thank you, thank you for dealing with this guy, uh, because. Uh, the people who rule us do not have a, the will to deal with these people. Not only do they not have the will to, to deal with them, like the, they, they do have will, a very strong will, and their will is that our city should be infested with, with, with people who, um, who do abominable things in, in public. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I, don't, I won't get into the graphic details of all the videos of, of things that homeless people do, um, but it's, 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 it's disgusting and dangerous. I mean, so many, I mean, you see some of these, uh, they're almost like snuff videos um, where a homeless guy in the subway pulls out a knife and stabs somebody. There's blood everywhere. Um, you could see a situation like that erupting with any one of these people. And so these are people who just want to live their lives and go to work and just keep their heads down and, 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 and they're being attacked. Yeah. It's a total, um, it's a total choice. And it's not like it's any mystery, like how you deal with it. Right. Like we, yeah. we used to commit people. And frankly, it's like the more merciful thing to do. I mean, somebody who's got serious substance abuse issues or is insane, like it's cruel to leave them on the streets. Um, and then it's cruel to all of the, you know, ordinary civilians as well who are trying to get it, get a, you know, get by with their lives. Um, I was in New York City last week and uh, just it's shocking. I mean, you're walking down, you know, Wall Street and, you know, and Park Street, and like, you know, the bastions of capital. Grand Central Station with all of its magnificent architecture and, you know, you look at all the, 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 the yeah. aspirations of the people who built that and the enlightened society and city they thought they were creating when they did that. And then, and then the, the contrast of that grandiose, like that wealth and that grandiose vision with, you know, smelling weed on like every street corner. I mean, you can't go 20 feet without smelling weed in New York City right now and, and homeless people. Even like well before midnight, you like in downtown Manhattan, it feels dangerous, and it kind of it, there's erratic people. You've got to keep your head on a swivel. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of it's it's just nuts. It's a total choice. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think is driving that you know phenomenon? I mean, are there you know I, I have a I have a tendency to approach things from like a institutional, a sociological you know mindset. Um, and I don't think, I don't think it can be entirely blamed on individual bad decisions. I think that, you know, uh, human beings are sort of the, the product of institutions. Uh, and I think the institutions are failing. And so therefore the people are 
degenerating. Um, like, do you have any just, uh, just spot? I know you, you probably haven't like studied this or anything, but just any, like what comes to mind when you, when you think about like the overall city degeneracy? Well, you know, um, I went to, so I went to law school back in 2015 and, um, even back then, you know, the, the shift was starting to happen like lefties, you know, before like 2010 or 2015, they wanted to go work for this Sierra club. They wanted to go work for some impact organization. When I was going through a lot of the smartest ones wanted to go be public defenders or go to be, go work in prosecutor's offices, which was hilarious because they never showed a shred of interest in actually prosecuting anything, but they definitely wanted to go work in a prosecutor's office. And I, this is anecdotal. Okay. This is not a theory of everything, but this I'm going is from to take my, it as one, so okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my experience at an elite law school with people who are now DAs across the country. And there, there are some who are bona fide communists and like actually like somewhat nihilistic and want to create human suffering to prepare the ground for revolutionary conditions. Like you need, you need suffering, you need broken people in order to create revolutionaries. And there are 100%, I would say some of like the smartest ones actually realize that they realize it's not good policy in some utilitarian sense, like to let people run around on the streets of our cities like this, but it helps further a goal that they're actually seeking. They're like, I, man, I, I just got to jump in there and just like, I, I, I mean, that's sort of the pattern instinct that I've had like as well. Like, I don't think... Like there's are some people at lower levels that just think like we shouldn't judge these people and all that stuff. But I think there is something nefarious at play here. So I'll, I don't want to interrupt you anymore, but I agree well, I mean, with just, that. And I, and I just, I see that all over the place. Like there is, these yeah. are, these are mechanisms of, of, of change. You know, these are change agents. These are conditions needed and necessary to, to overhaul something at a meta level. Well, just look at, um, I mean, all we have to do is think back to 2020 and Kenosha, and the riots there and the, the men that Kyle Rittenhouse shot. Um, and the, the first one, the one that attacked him, that was a convicted pedophile mm-hmm. who was released that day. Like he was released to go out and riot mm-hmm. that day. Like someone made the decision, let this guy out. And he's, he's connected maybe he went to maybe he doesn't know anybody there and he just went because that's what was happening but like they're letting people like that out the other guys that he shot one was uh one was convicted burglar and the other was a convicted uh domestic uh, assailant um and so all of these all three guys that he shot all had felonies um and (laughs) it's not like a coincidence or even if you i mean if you um you know read the mystery grove uh heavily shilled on twitter uh book uh always with honor um, and you see like the Russian revolution, that's, that's literally what the Bolsheviks did is they would empty the jails, uh, so that criminals yeah. would terrorize that? the people. It's a strategy of tension. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not, I mean, I, yeah, I, I was, I mean, jokingly said, take it as a theory of everything, but that, that does, that, that comports with my anecdotal experience as well of, of people I know that are in the legal profession, uh, that they, they want to go be judges. They want to go be in prosecutor's office in order to get criminals, uh, out of jail, Mm -hmm. um, to, and, and you have to, at some level, I mean, some of it is, is just people who are very, uh, 
weep, whippy and, and weepy and just think, oh, the poor criminals, they're, they're so, they're oppressed. Uh, they're, 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 those are like useful idiots, but like the people who um, are true believers, right? There's a clear agenda that right. we, we want to just plow under our civilization and create something newer and better and a utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, any, any go to like an Antifa riot or, you know, any kind of street action in a big city, um, and you're going to find a mixture of just like the total dregs of society mm-hmm. alongside Ivy Leaguers. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. 100%. The very top and the very bottom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the Ivy Leaguers that are there, these guys are like, like they're nihilists. Donnie, these men are nihilists. <laughs> All right. You, you um, have nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> yes. Um, like it's, it's frightening. Like I've had frightening conversations with yeah. people that were my colleagues, like, you know, in school or what have you. And, uh, and they're, they're only a small percent, but they're the smartest ones. They know what they're doing. And they also get to set the moral agenda for like a much bigger group of a profession. I think that happens in law. I suspect, I don't know. It happens in a lot of other fields. Well, and you see it too. Like, um, for instance, I went and testified to the Minnesota state Senate, the health and human services committee on the, the, um, free for all abortion bill that they passed the very first legislative item in the, in uh, Minnesota House and Senate this year. And um, I was the only pastor that testified. And there were a, a, a few pro, pro-life activists that, that testified. But the overwhelming majority of the people testifying were from NGOs. And so they're like, I mean, there are more NGOs, uh, left-wing NGOs pushing this stuff that you can shake a stick at. And that's also where a lot of these people go because there's tons of funding. There's tons of organization to, to push all of these things. Um, and, and it isn't, ultimately there isn't an an agenda beyond just, we, we really like killing babies or we really hate, uh, that people are allowed to own guns or that, uh, we really like mutilating children. Like there's an agenda beyond this. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, they, they want to create human suffering. I mean, literally like demonic ultimately. I mean, we've talked, we talked about this on Joel Webbins, uh, podcast, uh, last week. Uh, but it's, it's, it's demonic. Like demons want, and this is what Tucker, that the, the speech before he got fired, like, this is, this is what he talked about. This, this is what demons want. I mean, if you're familiar with Twin Peaks, um, the tell everyone stop what you're doing and watch, uh, all three seasons of Twin Peaks. Uh, but after the uh, podcast, right? that's right. That's right. Pause the podcast and then come back. Uh, but uh, that that television show by David Lynch, it's 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 about ultimately about demons and the underworld, and you know there's this substance like creamed corn that the demons eat called Garmin Bazolia uh, or whatever, uh, and uh, it's it's gross and disgusting, right? It looks like vomit, uh, but it's it's like food for demons. It's made out of human misery and suffering, and that's that's ultimate. That's like what sustains. Uh, their agenda like you're fighting you're fighting evil like they're trying to produce human suffering at a mass scale and that's like built into our society now. yeah uh, they want it um i, I agree with yeah, that have you guys oh go ahead sorry um have you read uh, paradise lost recently uh, 10 years ago all right but yeah i know where you go <laughs> yeah reread that book i mean seriously and then think about like what satan does and think about what like activists in our society do right yeah. now like, because this is a character who, who rebelled against God. He knew he was going to lose. He knew it was hopeless. And he did it anyway. And because, like, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, he yes. says. Mm-hmm. And, like, he knows he's lost. 
And so the only thing he can do is like basically act out of pure malice or spite and just try to destroy everything else that God made. I'm not going to overthrow God, but I'm going to try to totally destroy his creation. And like, I'm going to try to conscript other, you know, some of his creatures into my rebellion so that they mar themselves and also sort of damn themselves with their behavior. And, and like, there's a very, I mean, think about what happens with a transgender person. I mean, they're, 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 they're launching into a totally futile rebellion against nature, against their like created being, like mm-hmm. to try to give themselves a different status than what they were given as created beings. And like, and when, once they, once, I mean, once you do that, it's irreparable Yeah, physically, like you, you carry that for the rest of your life. You're creating, you're creating a hell around you essentially with the actions that you take. It's very satanic in like a very, like there's psychological a, echoes of Milton's Satan. Yeah, in a tangible, visceral way. Not just, not, we could talk about evil in this like theoretical, uh, theological, you know, way. But this is, this is like their, their flesh is being mangled mm-hmm. uh, permanently. And yeah, I mean, it's, and it's like, you know, Saul Alinsky, who was an atheist, you know, dedicates his book to Satan and he's dedicating it to Milton's Satan. Right, that's the first rebel, um, uh, the first radical, and and and, and that's that's the, the same thing. So whether he believed it or he did that ironically or not, uh, he was doing it sincerely. Uh, whether he understood it uh, that he was doing it sincerely, he was doing it sincerely because uh, that's what Satan wants. He wants to destroy God's creation uh, and his and and his people. Mm-hmm. I I th- I think I agree with the the cosmic angle on on this stuff that ultimately what happens in earthly politics is sort of a mirror that reflects you know cosmic confrontation and cosmic strife um, for sure. Um, but I also do want to echo and uh, distinguish Josh's own answer, and both of them are right for sure. But I also want to distinguish his own answer, which is that there are political el- political beneficiaries of the strategy of tension, and revolutions yeah. require. Um, these sort of like, uh, you know, really difficult dilemmas, like social dilemmas where there's no right answer, right answer. That's that there are political people in power. There are elite um, forces at play that are going to benefit from the, the collapse of the cities um, for sure. And so I, I think both answers are right. And I think ultimately all things um, politically are reflections of, of deeper struggles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a spiritual war. I mean, that's, I mean, the apostle Paul isn't just, he, he doesn't say what he says in Ephesians just to give like an illustration for, uh, you know, young men's youth camps about the armor of God. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys ever went to those in, in high school and college, but it's like, oh, we're going to talk about the armor of God again. Okay. Um, but it's, it's an actual spiritual battle against um, principalities and powers in the heavenly places that, that we are, we're doing war with demons here. And so that's, I mean, to take things full circle back to what we talked about at the very beginning, um, you know, this, this stuff with the, the, the really a silly reaction to a lot of the Christian nationalist debate. It really, I, we can broaden it up just beyond Christian nationalism, even though that's the term that is taking the headlines. It's, it's just Christians, Christian political engagement in general. What does that look like? Um, and so the really silly, uh, facile arguments that, that are being trotted out, um, I think misunderstand it, it almost from like a Gnostic perspective, like, well, the world doesn't really matter at all. Um, and misunderstanding that actually it does. And it's part of this great spiritual conflict taking place that in, in the unseen realms that we can't even see, right? We can't, we can't see with our eyes, 
we could trust is happening because of God's word, uh, that this is this is real. So when we're talking about principalities and powers and the armor of God and, and so forth, it's really real. And it pertains to these kind of conflicts, right? That's why you need, you know, the, um, the, the sword of truth. Uh, to fight these kind of battles, not to not to discuss how oh, am I infralapsarian or superlapsarian and get into these like theological um, you know, nerderies. It's um, it's they want to chop off the penises of little boys. Are we going to fight them or not? And what are we going to fight them with? Right. That's 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 where the armor of God comes in. You fight. Um, and so. Right. That's. That's why I think this stuff is important, why it matters. And, and, and you know, when we have these discussions, I mean, it's funny. Um, you know, we talk about we, the grill Americans. This is some of the stuff I've, I've, I've talked about with you know, guys, guys down here. Grill Americans, normies, you know, normicons, you know, football watchers, whatever you want to call them. Um, what's going to get them interested in the church and bring them into the pews is not going to be a guy driving a tank and crushing cars like we saw, I don't know if you saw the video of that the other day. Uh, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be um, having the best rock concerts or, or you know, smoke and you know, lasers and all these things, not these entertainments. Uh, what's going to return the, the grill American to the pews is Christian leaders willing to fight as Christians against these great evils in our yeah. society. And stand, take a stand loudly and boldly, and and build things that can withstand this fight. That's what's going to say, "Oh, wow, church actually matters. I should maybe take my family to church. This is I need to protect my children, and this is how." Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's 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 why I think this these conversations and the stuff we're doing, even, you know, even on this podcast, matters so much mm-hmm. um, because this is this is where the fight is, right? This is this is the stuff we got to be doing. Yep. Yep. Good. Well, I'm about out of time uh, for today. I guess yes. I have one more comment, and um, that means I, I think I really strongly disagree with with Josh, and I want to, you know, hold him accountable for this. Um, the Oxford comma thing—it's just, <laughs> you know, we can't we can't move forward as a nation unless you know unless we uh, defend the Oxford comma. That's. That's a very simple way of looking at the world. I, you're a fan of classical politics, and I would have hoped, CJ, that you would also be a fan of just a certain detachment towards these little marks that we throw on the page between words sometimes. Sometimes it makes it better, sometimes it doesn't. There's cases where it adds ambiguity. I'll tell you one thing. I've done about $50 billion worth of deals, like where money changing hands, legal documents, and I never had to use an Oxford comma in all of them. Mm-hmm. Well, you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> well, uh, I will tell you this. First of all, I wasn't ready for a serious answer, um, <laughs> but I will say, but I will say that I've, I've, um, I've honed my instincts on on friends and enemies, and uh, this is borderline. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, guys. It was it was a good conversation. I always appreciate these, and uh, maybe next time, Andrew, we'll be on time. Complicated business, folks. Uh, complicated business. Uh, well, CJ, uh, before you go, what what stuff do you uh, have uh, that our viewers should um, listeners should see? At what is my at? At Contra Mordor <laughs> for Twitter and Gab and CJEngel.substack.com uh, for that. And then you can also check out my Chronicles Magazine podcast where I do um, other stuff. Unfortunately, you won't see Andrew's mustache, but I will be there and talking to. <laughs> Um, a broader a broader uh, line of guests so 
Yes, yes. And, and for mm. me, I have I have more articles coming uh, very soon on uh, news.gab.com, and you can see you know the things I tweet and post um, at Boniface Option uh, at Twitter and Gab. Um, and we have, I mean, we have we have a bunch more content. I have I have an episode with the Prudentialist that I just did. Uh, CJ just did an episode. With yeah, the I did. Prudentialist as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, Mr. Prudentialist, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm on his podcast. We had a nice. conversation for an hour, actually, in this very studio right here. Um, and uh, it was uh, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I doxed him that he was you know here in, in Dallas. Uh, <laughs> he told me that too. Yeah. I think. On okay. Oh, okay. I, good. I don't know. Woo! I actually don't okay. remember. Well, All right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Well, sorry, but. He went. He went back to Alaska or wherever he's from. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'll, we'll put that in the links uh, when we get this out, and uh, you can listen to that as well. Um, but otherwise, and, and unfortunately, yeah, we're out of time for. Uh, we're all gonna make it uh, because I was late. We didn't. We didn't have enough time for him. Uh, maybe next time he'll be able to join us. Uh, but otherwise, for all of us here, uh, thank you so much, uh, Josh, for for joining us and. Uh, and your contributions you made. I didn't even have to talk at all this whole time. It was, it I was, barely said anything. It was nice. It was <laughs> yes. But for all of us here, uh, thank you so much for listening and watching, and we will see you next time.